You're listening to a SPIN podcast. We're interested in investigating the interconnections between secrecy, power, and ignorance that shape our world today. Hello, and welcome to uh, the next in our series of In Conversations. I'm Dr. Elspeth Van Vieren from the University of Bristol, um, and here in conversation with Dr. Oliver Kearns, who is also a researcher at the University of Bristol. But today we're going to be talking, rather appropriately, about sound and the ways in which we need to pay attention to sound when we think about secrecy. Welcome, Oliver. Hi, thanks for having me. Right, so... um, I guess the the most interesting thing um, that we can think about in relation to sound, uh, or where we can begin our conversation, is to talk about um, some of the projects, the different projects that you've got on the go at the moment. So what what paper are you working on at this very moment that has to do with sound? Oh, at the very moment, I'm just finishing off a paper about what was known as the Careless Talk Cost Lives campaign. So this was a propaganda campaign run by the British government during the Second World War. The aim of the campaign was to try to encourage members of the British public to be aware of what they say to other people in public places, and in particular that they should be careful about how they talk about the war effort and whether they inadvertently reveal things about, say, what um, uh, their where their boyfriend was being shipped off to or what they had heard down at the docks recently about new materials being brought in, where they were being sent to. Um, Because right at this, you know, we're now into about 1940 in the war. And the idea that German spies have uh, infiltrated all sections of British society was quite a popular one. And... What was interesting about that for me in terms of secrecy is not least the idea that uh, ordinary members of the public were seen to have a, a kind of security role. I guess you can see some parallels in terms of what happens today with the so-called war on terror, the idea about being a vigilant citizen. You know, I was on the train the other day and you have the see it, say it, sorted sort of line. And this is very much a similar sort of thing. So you would have a lot of uh, promotional material, posters, but also radio programs, dramatizations, which were trying to teach people to be careful what they said and who they said it to. Uh, so that's the thing I'm working on now. And, and in a way, that that helps us move the conversation, again, appropriately, away from a focus on secrecy as something that is that that it t- takes up a kind of a visual domain mm. and thinking about secrecy as the policing or the management of the oral domain. And so that's quite in- innovative. So in what in what ways were were people expected to manage or or control themselves? Yeah, it's it was quite a paradoxical campaign in many ways. And that's why many historians nowadays see it largely as a failure. Uh, a kind of ironic failure because a lot of the materials associated with it are quite well known. The phrase careless talk costs lives in the in the United States, it was loose lips, sink ships. Um, also the the uh, images associated with it, the, the punch cartoonist, British cartoonist Fugas, with his um, famous funny cartoons of a um, kind of uh, stand-up duo 
of Hitler and Goebbels uh, hiding in a train compartment or ducking underneath a restaurant table listening in on people. Um, and that, that sort of gets at the idea of how people were being asked to manage their speech and their listening and why it was paradoxical. People were being told at this point through these different materials what you say to other people in ordinary conversation may seem innocuous and plain to you, but in actual fact is of great security importance. You might be inadvertently revealing some aspect of a state secret. So say you worked at a factory somewhere and you told someone down the pub later that evening that you would have to stay on late because they were bringing in certain materials from abroad. The idea was... A dramatization of that would say, what by doing this, you've actually revealed part of a secret state strategy. So therefore, it's trying to encourage people not to say things like this and to listen out for when it happens. But in order to do that, you have to tell people what a secret sounds like. And in fact, a lot of the early criticism of the campaign was along the lines of, um, well, it sounds like we're not allowed to talk about anything. What counts? What counts as... Um, innocent gossip and what counts as something more dangerous. And that was never really a conundrum which the campaign was able to resolve. So they tried different tones in how they approached it. They went from a very serious tone to something much more comical, like the Fugas stuff. But in the end, the problem was still the same. You teach people how to listen in on secret state activities precisely so that they should then learn not to do it. And that's what I find most interesting about it. And and also what seems distinctive about sound to me is that to some extent it's uh, there are certain things about sound which make it different from other senses in terms of whether you can stop yourself hearing things or not. I mean, you, I think you mentioned attention earlier on. That seems quite appropriate. It's about what kind of attention you give different things around you just in the way that we do all the time. So I... I think that's amazing, and I think it's something that we need to think a lot more about when we're thinking about secrecy and when we're thinking about security as well. Um, but but let's go back to that that statement that you made or or that question about what a secret sounds like. Mm. And so so I mean we've got um, we think about visual vocabularies uh, sort of again uh, mixing the oral and the visual <laughs> metaphors. Yeah. We we talk about visual grammars or visual. Um, uh, ideas about what secrecy looks like. What does secrecy sound like? Mm, yeah, that's a good question. Well, one one of the things that I found in doing this research is that normally when we talk about secrecy, and I'm sure you've found this as well, it's it seems quite natural to use a certain visual material vernacular. It's just a quite common sense. It makes sense to talk to people about how you hide certain aspects of yourself from others or that you want to put a veil over certain activities, um, that secrecy is about making things visible or invisible. And that therefore leads to quite obvious objects of study. So in feels like you and I are in security studies. If we were to look at secrecy, the most obvious thing would be to think about uh, barriers around space, about walled-off places, closed rooms, you know, smoke-filled back rooms, etc. So that's a kind of visual imaginary we have of secrecy. When we think about a sonic imaginary, 
One thing that developed particularly in um, Western Europe during the course of the Cold War was that secrecy became associated with sound precisely because it was hard to pinpoint exactly what it would sound like, that it could be potentially present in anything that people say, for instance, like in the the example I gave of rumours and of gossip. But also that over time, a certain idea of silence became thought of as quite indicative of secrets being kept. You see that used aesthetically quite a lot in in uh, popular culture, the idea of a, a, a pregnant pause or a you know a con- conspicuous silence when you're asked a question is is quite a useful motif to get across the idea that someone's uh, keeping something from other people. But it also has quite profound political implications. Um, one because it shapes our ideas about silence as implica- you know implicating a person, making them seem guilty, uh, and that gets to the idea of how easily we can interpret other people's silences. Um, But also in something I'm familiar with, state practices, the idea of eavesdropping is is very much a silent activity and that's what makes it so so, uh, difficult for states to discipline, I suppose. Um, So during the Cold War, you have a lot of uh, representations of Again, quite modern phenomenon, uh, phone tapping, listening in on people's conversations, where the most obvious sign that you're being listened into is either that you can't hear anything, in which case this this is somehow implicitly suspicious that certain spaces can be seen as uh, being too quiet, or the idea of the gentle humming noise the slight uh, rhythm or click that you hear when you pick up and, or put down a telephone. Uh, I mean, I've had uh, I've had a joke with a friend of mine that whenever we're talking on the phone and we hear one of these clicks, we say, oh, that's just the Fed, say hi to them again. Um, but definitely that's something that's been um, repeated both in public life and in popular culture is these um, s- uh, slightly inconspicuous noises or noises that are trying to, to hide away from you. But once you pay attention to them, you invest them with a certain power of secrecy. Um, which which brings me to the some of the ideas I've been playing with at the moment is is not only to think about those silences and those those quiet moments as as what secrecy sounds like, but also to, to but going back to that idea of clicks. Or mm. the gentle hum, um, when when a sound makes you evokes a kind of a sense of secrecy, or reminds you of a landscape that is mm. associated with secrecy. Yeah. And so I'm thinking a bit about um, not only about the idea of removing sound, but the idea of almost filling a space with a particular types of sounds that either overwhelm the senses, like flashbangs, so the ways in which, um, mm. or uh, or music can be turned on to interrupt an eavesdropping kind of mechanism, or the ways in which um, you might um, talk a bit about the number stations work that you're doing and how oh, yeah. secrecy can sound like nonsense sometimes and the encoding and coding that goes on or the yeah the, the bits and bops and bleeps that go on in a, in a coded transmission yeah absolutely i mean i guess what what you made me think of just there as well is that you know there's there's a distinction between hearing and listening and again that's about what kind of attention you give to things so that um there there are things all the time which we hear 
including silence, but that we don't pay attention to, attention to, and therefore they don't become sounds in our imagination of of ourselves and the world around us. And I think that a lot of the way that secrecy becomes present in public is the kinds of attention we give to sounds. And again, like I say, investing them with a certain notion of their being suspicious or out of place or unexpected. Uh, and therefore that's about meaningfulness, how meaningful are certain sounds to us, like the way we associate um, certain sounds with a sense of place, a sense of, of home, the way that you would hear birdsong and therefore you, you conjure up a certain idea of um, being in a place that you know or that you love. And that takes me around to this idea of noises and to number stations. Um, if we go just beyond the period I was talking about, the Second World War, uh, or, or just as we're getting to the end of that war, um, the British, the French, and the US are setting up what will become their intelligence services at this point and their special forces. And the um, uh, original forms of these different groups are having to find ways to communicate with one another in occupied Europe and occupied Southeast Asia. So what they do is they begin um, mass purchases of r different radio sets, shortwave radio sets, the idea being that uh, someone who has been parachuted into occupied France then knows that a certain time of day, a certain time of day on a certain day during the week, they have to tune into a certain frequency and they will hear a short message. The message will be seemingly random. It will involve a stream of uh, letters and numbers or, or references to uh, places or common words. And the person listening in will have a, a code book in front of them. It's known as a one-time pad, which will have um, an explanation for them of what these different letters and numbers correspond to. And they are to use these codes only once, and then they rip them off and throw them away. And this became known as the one-way voice link. And nowadays they're known as number stations because of the, the these eerie, automated... Uh, usually female voices that are reading out these codes. And so you have a lot of the development of um, speech synthesis and automated voices is happening at this time. For instance, the, the machines that are being used here to, to transmit these messages are very similar to and are often derived from the same technology used to um, automate uh, you know, junk voice calls or when you ring the number that tells you at the beep, the time will be, etc. Um the relation that I see there as well to, to what you were describing is that here you have the use of not just voice, it could also be white noise, rhythms of white noise, or even snippets of, of music, snippets from popular cartoons or television shows, national anthems, um, which either seem, um, again, innocuous or don't seem to have any meaning to them whatsoever. Uh, I find it interesting thinking about whether a secret has been unearthed there or not. What kind of sonic presence does secrecy have there if you listen to something where you don't quite understand it? It seems similar to, or has some links to being uh, sensorily overwhelmed uh, in terms of your, the whole of your senses, like too much smell or too much vision. Um, that's a particular kind of uh, almost sublime experience at times, which again, feeds into certain ideas about how secrecy works, I suppose. And if we can, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll link to uh, 
a website which presents the opportunity to oh, listen yeah, to number stations um, or try and cut some in into this podcast um, because they're very they're very distinctive, aren't they, in a, in a particular way. Um, so just I think the final thing to maybe t- to, to think about uh, or the things that we're thinking about are in relation to the, the multi-sensory mm. elements or the intersensory elements of secrecy, how sound and how vision or touch, how those interconnect. So in the in the sort of final minute or so, Oliver, do you have any any thoughts on how your work is touching on the intersensory or is this a direction that you're still planning to go in? Oh, yeah. I mean, one of the most, one of the things you quickly realize when you become interested in writing about sound, um, it reminds me of, first off, it reminds me of that uh, phrase, I can never remember who it's uh, attributed to, that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. And I suppose what's meant by that, first off, is it's hard to it's hard to articulate the sort of feelings that you get from from hearing certain things and and the meaning you associate with them. But also that, uh, very practically speaking, uh, sound archives are not nearly as um, uh, well constructed or uh, as easy to access um, worldwide than other forms of archives. Uh, the whole point of a sound and what makes it so conducive to to keeping secrets is that once it happens, it's gone. It's an event and it's a process rather than um, an object. Uh, so that means that when you want to study it, you have to use other senses in order to gain indirect access to it historically. So you might be looking at historical archives which involve text and images and, and they give you representations of how people experience their world through their ears. Um, there are also sound archives. I've been uh, looking a lot of radio recently to do with number stations and so on. So you can listen to old recordings of radio. But you also have to think about um, how your experience of it now might be very different from how people were experiencing it decades ago because they weren't sitting in um, a booth similar to the one that we're in right now, which will affect the way that you listen, affects... um, for instance, the intimacy involved in sound, that a lot of what people associated with early uses of radio was this feeling that, oh, it's someone talking to me, that this is what people liked so much and still like about radio is the idea of the voice that's communicating just with you in your kitchen, um, which isn't necessarily how a researcher like me is going to access those things, though we can try to recreate it in different ways. But I think what that gets to is that how you, say, see an object like a radio what it means to to hold it and to have to um, alter it with your hands will also affect what it is that you're then listening to. And I wouldn't be surprised if the reverse were true. And that's something that I very much want to keep looking into. Super. Okay, so um, I guess we'll um, end our conversation for today, at least, on the interconnections between sound and secrecy. And so I'll say a big thank you to Oliver for joining me today. Thanks very much, Elspeth. No worries. You've been listening to a Spin podcast. For more episodes, please check out our website, secrecyresearch.com, or find us on iTunes. Mm-hmm.